You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop, the podcast helping water leaders to discover solutions and drive change. I'm the host, Travis Loop. This episode is from a conversation at the Reservoir Center for Water Solutions in Washington, D.C. Science has always been foundational to water management. That tradition continues in 2023 with a staggering breadth and depth of research underway. It's particularly important to gain knowledge about emerging contaminants, impacts of climate change, and water reuse, as discussed in this podcast with Peter Gravatt, CEO of the Water Research Foundation. Peter explains how research can be applied to improve water management, the opportunity for regulators to use research to accelerate solutions, and the science of PFAS. Peter, it is fantastic to sit down and talk to you. Always a good conversation, so looking forward to this. Thanks, Travis. Always a pleasure to be with you. Really want to talk big picture to start about kind of the state of water research as we sit here in 2023. What does that landscape look like? Well, it's incredibly vibrant. It's incredibly exciting and incredibly important for the communities we serve. It's a time when there are so many challenges that we have to meet. And the only way we're going to get there is to bring in the best science and the latest science to to unlock opportunities and, and address these challenges that communities are facing. The sector always talks about being guided by science, right? And so it's important to get that out, get those, uh, get that research out there, get the science out there, advance that, and let that guide decision making. Absolutely. And the way that we do research at the Water Research Foundation is incorporating all the stakeholders in the process. So the utility subscribers, the engineering consultants, the manufacturers, uh, all come together to help guide the research that we do and then are available to implement that research. So it's not something that we're doing off on the side and hoping someone will pick up. It's actually we have those folks who ultimately use it right at the ground floor designing the work that we do. Aside from like the water sector itself, the Water Research, research Foundation, you talk about this network. So there's universities out there and all these other entities that are, that are filling in and working together at this moment. And that's really kind of grown, would you say? Absolutely. And as I said, that's part of the reason why I say it's so vibrant and exciting right now. There's so much opportunity and so many critical issues that folks are facing. We were talking about in your own community where where your utilities had to take on treatment of PFAS at great expense to the customers like yourself. $43 million for the record, yeah. (laughs) Right, and this is playing out across the country, across North America and around the world. And so it's a critical time for us to be developing new science and using that science to guide our decisions. There's so many issues in water. Uh, what are kind of the top research priorities, uh, you know, the, the front burner issues where everyone's really trying to advance that science as much as possible? Uh, Travis, we launched 52 projects last year. So I'm not going to give you a, a, a summary of each of those, but, but there are three that I would identify that come to mind that seem to me to be really top level. And the first of these is emerging contaminants. We were just talking about PFAS in North Carolina. And emerging contaminants, not only PFAS, I mean, we're at a time, you and I have seen, uh, we're at a time when the analytical techniques that are available to us are so powerful and are advancing so rapidly 
that forevermore we are going to be in the situation of discovering things in our water resources, compounds or constituents or contaminants in our water resources that in the past maybe we didn't know that were there. So Gen X is a great example, right? A, a research study, non-targeted monitoring, ultimately identified Gen X in water resources. So that's just one example. This is going to happen again and again and again. And it will always be the case, I suspect, that we'll detect things in water resources before we have any way to understand what the implications of the presence of those materials are for public health and the environment. And so, I mean, you're a communicator, right, by trade. And communications could not be more important than they are for emerging contaminants, because we will always be trying to both figure out what the implications of these substances are, but also having to talk to the public, to the customers, who rightfully are going to want to know, well, what does this mean? What is this stuff, and what does it mean? We'll always be playing catch up. So that's the first area that I would say is. I, I just want to take a tangent or a pause on that one there, because it's, that's, it's such a difficult area. Uh, it's like the blessing and the curse of science, right? It, it, shows us what is in the water, what we weren't aware of, and then it creates concern, right? And then you have to, this risk communication is one of the greatest challenges out there. Um, that's not really a research area, but it's something that, that comes out of the research, right? Well, it's like, how do we talk to people then when we, when we learn these things? And in fact, it is a research oh, area. We just right. completed a project, okay. uh, One Water Communications on PFAS, anticipating that there were going to be so many discussions that would be had related to the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule, monitoring that EPA is implementing now all across the United States, thinking about PFAS and biosolids. So this is an important research area, one that we cover at the Research Foundation, and one that really all researchers need to be thinking about. It's not just a matter of doing the technical work. It's so important to figure out how we make this research accessible to communities that really need this information to guide their decision making. So emerging contaminants <laughs> is the first area that I would identify. The second, uh, we were also just talking about a few minutes ago, is climate. And climate adaptation, climate resiliency, and increasingly climate mitigation across the water sector. And so just to dive into that a little bit more, you know, there are communities all across the United States, across North America, and around the world that are having to adjust to the incredibly rapid changes that we're seeing in the climate that, in fact, that, that affect water availability. You know, the, the sources of drinking water that communities were built around and that were, were, were uh, set up to count on for forever. And so all of a sudden, some of those water sources are not going to be here in the same way, particularly in arid areas, arid areas across the West. Um, so that's one area. Another area is thinking about flooding. And we see more and more communities around the world that are experiencing these thousand-year storms on a cycle of every few years, it seems. So it's rapidly changing, and that particularly impacts vulnerable populations. You were mentioning you were recently down in New Orleans, and we all know about Katrina, but Katrina is certainly not the only place where we're seeing this. And, I, and I've often thought, you know, could I ever imagine the day when a hurricane like Hurricane Ida would make landfall in Louisiana 
or on the Gulf Coast, and people would drown in their basement apartments on the East Coast of the United States. I mean, what a storm. And these are becoming increasingly frequent. Uh, and, then, and then the third area I just touch on is water reuse. You know, and just an important area thinking about to, to help address the challenges with climate, we're going to have to find new sources of drinking water for communities. We can't just say to communities, sorry, got to close up shop. Everyone got to move somewhere, right? We need to find new ways to do that. And reuse is going to be a key factor. Mm. So what, what kind of research is being done on reuse then? What needs to be understood on that? We have so many projects that we focused on re uh, a reuse, and we were supported by the California State Water Board and, and the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California in, in implementing about 25 different research projects. And these include things like looking at what are the, the levels of uh, pathogens in raw wastewater that's treated and ultimately in a reuse scenario becomes a source of drinking water for a potable reuse scenario. We have developed the largest data set that exists anywhere in the world on levels of those pathogens to help us understand, well, how much disinfection is necessary, how many log reduction values do we need to achieve in order to have a safe product at the end. You know, just one example. I'm also looking at things like volatile contaminants in, in uh, source waters and how those treatment trains address those and, and thinking even about how we track uh, what's happening in communities in terms of uh, the health of the populations, not just from a reuse scenario, but more broadly. You know, we have such a better understanding in the United States today of outbreaks related to foodborne pathogens than we do related to water. So that's just another area that we want to develop. Now that's fascinating with the climate change, uh, the flooding that you mentioned. I think it was last year, there was like five months in a row, five different states, 500 year events. So it's definitely impacting communities. It's not just these coastal storms or the Western drought, right? It's uh, different dimensions that, that are impacting everything. For certain, and it, and it raises another issue around resiliency. So we saw recently in California, California, who's been in long state that's been in long-term drought, this atmospheric river that came right earlier this year, and this incredibly intense rainfall, huge amounts of stormwater, and yet it's very difficult to capture all that stormwater right now to recharge the aquifers and make sure it's going to be available for the long term. Another rich area of research around climate. Great opportunity to capture that water. I mean, that, that, is, that is gold, liquid gold to those communities. Liquid gold and you know, stormwater can contain a number of constituents that need to be removed. So it's not a simple task. There's a lot to think about how to do this most effectively. So emerging contaminants, climate change, dealing with water scarcity through reuse. These are like macro level issues that are impacting every aspect of the water sector. So the research has to happen in order to do, just do regular business. These are big problems to, to tackle. They are, and let me give you one more. My, my third okay. would be how to take advantage of the vast amounts of data that are available right now to manage water resources in a different way than we ever have before. So we're at the cusp of just an explosion of technology for digital tools, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all the conversation that we've had about ChatGPT and recognizing, Travis, that this is one small example 
of a sea of technology that is on the way that is going to transform our society. It's going to transform the way that we manage resources like water resources. And so we're involved in research to figure out how we begin to harness these tools to help us treat our water resources more effectively and more efficiently, lower energy use, less greenhouse gas implications, and to tailor those treatment trains just to meet exactly the levels that we need to hit. There's also a whole big aspect here of training the workforce of the future, right? Because this is a big change. We've seen in blue collar jobs, historically, during your and our, your and my lifetime, we've seen how the economy has changed, how, say, robotics have come in to replace jobs that were previously done by humans. You look at something like ChatGPT as an example, and you say, all right, this is a tool that can write as well or better than a whole lot of our college-educated uh, population. So how do we harness this tool to help us do our jobs better, not to replace workers, but to help us do a better job overall. So this is an important area of research for us as well. It's like the, the transition from the analog world to the digital world, and then the speed at which all that change is happening is just incredible, and, and you've got to try to keep up with that somehow. It, it, it is stunning, and, and to think that on the order of 15 years ago is when the iPhone was introduced. And before the iPhone, most of the largest corporations that we interact with today didn't exist. So if you think about a Google, or if you think about an Amazon, right, or you think about, say, an Uber, or a Lyft, or all the long list of things that didn't even exist, and now today they're among the biggest corporations in the world. This change is happening so quickly that it's difficult for many of us, you know, have to take a deep breath and say, <laughs> okay, the world just changed again. Let me get used to this. And as, as I mentioned, chat GPT coming out just a short while ago, um, uh, I tried to log on to chat GPT recently. It just said, uh-uh, capacity already exceeded. You can get on the waiting list. There are already 100 million users of this tool. And thinking about, all right, so how are we going to take advantage of this? And again, build it into the workforce, not to push anybody aside, but to say, all right, we, there's something here that we can leverage. We can be better. They don't need the communications people to write press releases anymore, I guess. Uh, you know, that, that just Travis, Travis, we're still going to need communications <laughs> people to write press releases. Yeah. Uh, one thing that always fascinates me is taking research and applying it in the real world, right? It's awesome to, to find all this information, these answers. How do you then use it to make things better? Could you talk about that in context of the water sector and just kind of some examples even? Absolutely. And so, as I said, the way that, that we approach research, which I think is essential, is that we will have the utilities that ultimately might implement the research. We have engineering consultants that might recommend a new approaches to utilities. We have academicians. We have regulators. Uh, and in some cases, members of the public all working together to try and both craft an approach to address a pressing problem and then think about how we take advantage of those research results. So a couple of examples that I would give you. We just uh, finished a project that's focused on release of PFAS from land-applied biosolids. As you know, this is an issue that is of tremendous importance 
not only in the United States and across North America, but all around the world. So, for example, in the United States, on the order of 50% of the biosolids that are generated annually are land applied for beneficial reuse. And there are big questions in some states. The state of Maine has already banned the land application of biosolids due to concerns of release of PFAS and uptake into things like milk and, and dairy and other, other uh, agricultural resources. We need to understand this issue Better. And so we just completed this project uh, that included land application of biosolids in a very controlled experimental fashion to see, all right, how much PFAS are in these biosolids, how much is releasing, how quickly, and where is it going? This is the kind of research that is needed to guide these big, uh, these big decisions that we're going to be facing. So think about, for example, we saw in this research as we got samples of several uh, biosolids from different water utilities, we found that the uh, levels of PFAS in some of these biosolids were 1 50th of the level that is incorporated into some cosmetics. All right, so 1 50th of the level in biosolids, it's actually cosmetics that are designed to be put on the skin or lipstick or eyeliner, you know, so it's important to think about that from a risk management standpoint and what that means. That is, that is also incredibly valuable information on the communication front. I mean, because there is all of this public attention on, on PFAS and water as the source and on biosolids. Uh, and there's not as much awareness of the presence of PFAS in household goods, consumer products. And so you do that research and you can help educate the public on on this issue that's that's incredibly valuable to the water sector yeah absolutely and 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 I don't raise that to diminish in any way the importance of thinking through this issue of PFAS sure. and other constituents and biosolids but it's so important to know uh, and uh, so that's one example uh, another example of ways that that research is being applied is uh, we did a project with Halifax, Nova Scotia. So when I was much younger, one of the issues that we were talking about all the time, which you probably remember as well, is acid rain. And so we were very concerned about acid rain. And there was great success through regulatory approaches that are implemented at the federal level and at the state level to reduce emissions of constituents that are being carried east across the country and then deposited into lakes. And you might remember that you would go to beautiful areas, remote areas in the east, and you'd see these pristine, clear lakes. Well, they were pristine and clear because they were acidified, right? And so things that would otherwise grow in those lakes was not growing because the pH was so low. So we solved that problem in large part and created a new one, which is that now some of those lakes that were sources of drinking water, like for Halifax, Nova Scotia, as they started to recover, had all kinds of things growing in them that would be concerns in terms of precursors for disinfection byproducts, for example. So we developed a research project in conjunction with Halifax and Hazen, which is one of the subscribers, consulting engineers that we have, developing a decision support tool for managing lake recovery. As the lakes come back the way we want them to, we have to make sure that our treatment trains 
are ready to address those challenges. And so that's another example of a really uh, exciting project that we just uh, just just brought home. Fascinating. Yeah, acid rain. I hadn't heard about that in a while, right? The hole in the ozone, the acid rain, these are problems in the past that we've made progress on, which is good. And um, let, let me tell you about just one more. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm, I'm thinking in threes. Okay. So <laughs> just one more is, is a project that we've just launched that I'm so excited about uh, that's focused on incorporating equity and social dimension into community uh, climate change adaptation planning and watershed management. So what does this mean? So if we break this down, it's looking at opportunities to incorporate not only technical expertise, but also the lived experience of the community members in understanding what steps might be taken to try and build resiliency for climate impacts that we see coming. And we know that, well, uh, we were talking about New Orleans before. We know that oftentimes the segments of the community that are most heavily impacted by climate are those who are the most vulnerable. And so here's a tool we're developing that's going to be looking at development of a, of a triple bottom line uh, dashboard to help communities to think about who is paying for community adaptation uh, uh, investments and who benefits from them at the community level to try and help communities to be better prepared to think from an equity lens of about what's going to meet the, the broader challenges that they're looking to address. So I'm so excited about this project. And it's one, again, we'll go right into um, implementation at the community level. Well, so many times with research, you think about hard science, right? Uh, test tubes and equipment and all this kind of thing. But you know, you've reminded me a couple times in this conversation, there's a lot of dimensions to science. There's, there's the research around communications or around social aspects and all that. So thank you for, for keeping me uh, the broader mind there. We used to talk a little bit when we were together at the EPA that, uh, that my own perspective is when we do outstanding research, and yes, we use test test tubes and we use all kinds of equipment at the Water Research Foundation. When we have done outstanding research, we have done a really great job at part of our responsibility. The second part of the responsibility is making this research accessible to the communities that need to use it most of all. Absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, speaking of impact, what, what can be done or what needs to be done to take water research to the next level, to make it really impactful uh, and, and you know, apply it to these key challenges out there. Yeah, so I, of course, have the belief that it already is having great impact. And with some of those examples that we had shared, I think, Travis, one of the opportunities for us to make additional progress is to, to work towards having regulators have the opportunity to take full advantage of the research being developed both in the federal government but outside the federal government as well in guiding decisions towards re important regulatory actions. So we've touched a, a bit on PFAS and, and I know that's one of the topics that that is top of mind for everyone across the water sector. Uh, both from the standpoint of managing public health risk and, and environmental threats, but also from the standpoint of public concern, right? PFAS have really captured the imagination of the communities we serve. Um, and 
PFAS are such a complicated set of, of constituents, and it's such a complicated set of problems that we have to address on PFAS. And as we think about taking regulatory steps to address PFAS, and there are important regulatory steps to address PFAS in water resources, it's going to be so important to have the research to help guide our understanding of potential unintended consequences and potential uh, outcomes that may be associated with regulatory actions that we take. And so I gave you the example of uh, the experience of lake recovery. So many people were probably not thinking that when we took the action to reduce emissions in coal-fired power plants in the Midwest, that it was going to have an impact on water treatment utilities in the East who were going to have to make investments to remove disinfection or precursors deficient disinfection byproducts. That does not in any way argue against the importance and the great success that we can celebrate in making progress on, on uh, acid rain. But the environment is a complex system. And so if we're thinking about PFAS and we're thinking about things like, say, biosolids, and what should be the right way to manage biosolids? And if we were to decide, for example, more states were to decide, well, we don't want to land apply biosolids anymore, we need to think about where those biosolids are going to go and what the implications are for issues like cost for customers and also implications around things like, say, if they were to go to landfills, landfill capacity and how do communities plan for that. Or if ultimately PFAS are listed as hazardous substances under CERCLA, and if that has implications for what sorts of landfills biosolids can go to, what's the capacity, say, of a hazardous waste landfill? And who's going to pay for all this? Who's going to pay for it? And, and you know, one of the, one of the um, uh, sources of materials that our water resource recovery facilities treat often is landfill leachate. And so how much PFAS might come out in the le leachate? And none of this, again, is to argue against the importance of addressing these issues in biosolids. But we need to be thinking about all the other parts of the environmental system at the same time. And it's very difficult to do that with the environmental regulations that we have. When I ran the drinking water program at EPA, I was responsible for implementing the Safe Drinking Water Act. I wasn't Letter responsible, of the law. absolutely, of the law. Yep. and I took great pride in the opportunity to do that with my fabulous colleagues at EPA and fabulous colleagues at the state, and at the states. And I, I wasn't charged with thinking primarily about so what might be happening in terms of landfill leachate, you know, in this case, or um, if we if we saw biosolids, uh, another thing that some utilities do with their biosolids is they'll incinerate their biosolids. So if biosolids are then going to an incinerator, we need to be thinking about what's the energy implications associated with that? What's the cost implications? What's the carbon footprint 
associated with that. And what kind of controls do we have on those incinerators to make sure that the PFAS that are in the biosolids are not merely being released from the biosolids going up in the stack, being deposited back on the ground, flowing into our water resources, being captured ultimately in biosolids. You know, it's like you can imagine a big circle. Sure. So none of this is to argue against the important regulatory steps that we have to consider. But it says our systems are complex. And we are at a new day in environmental regulation where we have to create the space to think about all of these different aspects and try and think, well, how do we value carbon emissions versus PFAS reductions in, in, in land application biosolids? It's a very challenging area. I think it's a ripe opportunity for research. And this is what we, this is what we get to do. These are the questions that we get to ask. And why do I say, uh, the climate for research is exciting and is vibrant because, wow, what a great opportunity to ask these kinds of questions and help to make the world better and better as we go along. Yeah, despite these big challenges, it's a really exciting time uh, because there's so much attention on water, not from just within the water sector, but from outside. It's kind of like a big moment for water. So it's exciting in that regard. Yeah, and I, I, I uh, you, you know very well that I'm a, I'm a child of the east side of Cleveland, Ohio, right? I grew up where the Cuyahoga River uh, flowed through my city, and I was uh, seven years old when the Cuyahoga River burned. And we just had a, we just had a celebration that Administrator Regan at the EPA held on the Cuyahoga River, the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. And to go to that river today and say, my God, you know, in fact, a backdrop when he was speaking, a white egret landed behind him on the river. And it's, and it's just like, this is what we have accomplished. And there's so much more opportunity, so much driven by research. And we're going to help to unlock these opportunities to keep making things better and better as we go along. Yeah, well, it's exciting to me to sit down and talk to you. Uh, as we've alluded to a couple times, we were at the EPA Office of Water together. I was doing comms. You were running the drinking water and groundwater office. Uh, PFAS really emerged, I think, during that time, led to. Uh, but it's exciting to sit here this many years later and have you leading the charge on research. Uh, really exciting. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Travis. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening to this podcast. And thanks to the Reservoir Center for partnering with the Waterloop nonprofit media outlet. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.